to season two, episode seven of the Mixtape with Scott. Today's guest is a very close friend of mine. We met on Twitter, joined the Slack channel two years ago to work on a revise and resubmit project. And like many close friends on Slack, we didn't get any work done on that project, but we became good friends. The poet and playwright Robert Browning's first letter to his future wife, Elizabeth Barrett, began this way. I love your verses with all my heart, dear Miss Barrett. Such a romantic man. Well, I love these words by Sue Johnson from Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love that read like a verse to me. We use stories to make sense of our lives. We use stories as models to guide us in the future. We shape stories and then stories shape us. This is exactly what my podcast is about, personal stories. I firmly believe that by listening to people's specific stories, it can help us understand and navigate our own lives. So as you listen to my guest's story, my hope is that you can see like through the distorted thick glass of a heavy window pane, your own life story being told. That as you listen with compassion and curiosity towards this person, you will feel connected to them and that the gift of this podcast to you will be the ability to update your own story with this other person's story. So with that said, let me give a warm introduction to my good friend, Pedro Santana, professor of economics at Vanderbilt University and employee at Microsoft. Pedro is known to many of you as one of the most exciting young econometricians writing on popular applied topics like difference and differences. He's a a gregarious person who I don't think I've ever seen not smile big. Maybe he just likes smiling at me. I know it feels good, though, whatever the reason it is, to always see that big man with his big smile. So thank you for tuning in to this week's podcast. I am your po- your host, Scott Cunningham. Well, it is a, a real delight to have someone who has become, over the last few years, uh, one of my a, a friend, someone I consider a friend, one of my favorite people in the profession, Pedro Santana. Pedro, thank you so much for being on the, the podcast. Thank you, Scott, for having me. It's a great pleasure for being here. Um, for the sake of the people that are listening that may not know who you are, can you say uh, your name, your title, and um, you, you know who your employer is right now? Yeah, I am Pedro Santana. I'm a principal researcher at Microsoft. And I'm currently on leave from Vanderbilt University, where I am a assistant professor of economics as well. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Well, okay. Well, before we get into your career um, as an economist, I just wanted to know, you know, where, where did you grow up? So I'm from Brazil. I'm Brazilian from Brazil, uh, but not from the big cities like Sao Paulo, Rio and all that. I'm from a smaller town called Governador Valadares in Minas Gerais. So I grew up there. Like my 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 parents are ranchers, so we grow cattle, right? Mm-hmm. So for a living, so it's a very different, non-traditional like background. Oh, okay. So you're you're there. They grow cattle. So you yes. grew you grew up on a farm. I mean, it's in a city, but I was my my father is a vet, so I was oh. constantly going like to the farm, like and playing around with like cattle, riding horses, and all that stuff. Right, right, so right. Th- these days, people say, "Oh, I play video games. I did all that when I was a kid." I mean, I just ride horses, climb trees, and and I and milk cattle. Oh, that's wonderful. That's so cool. So you had a great childhood. Oh, I mean, amazingly, I mean, it, it was fantastic. Yeah. Right? So I mean, being out in like in the wild, 
I mean, a lot of nature, yeah. right? different different things, right? So it's like, it was very alive. I mean, from time to time, I remember like going, to, in, I'm in a farm. My father's like, we are like, I don't know, like six, seven years old, full mm. of energy. Me, I have a younger brother. Yeah. And they're like, we are running around the house, making a lot of noise. He's like, you know what? Look at the chickens, go grab one. The one you grab, you're gonna eat for lunch. Right? <laughs> oh my gosh. So then it's like, it's, it takes forever because it's impossible to grab a chicken out in the wild. So. <laughs> sure. It's a very different thing. Oh my gosh. So your dad, he was a vet. What, what did your mom do? My mom, I mean, she works with my father as well. Like we, I mean, they have a company like that provide consulting services for everything that the farm needs, mm-hmm. like both like equipment, consulting services. So my mom runs the company with my father. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Well, what kind of vacations did you take as a kid? Did y'all ever go on any vacations? So we went a lot to the beach, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as a whole, my, my whole extended family. So me, my brother, my father, my mother, my cousins, my grandparents. We, I mean, we spent almost all the summers in like a smaller city, like mm-hmm. in Bahia, yeah. right? And like, Big house, everybody in the same house. Every year we spent almost two months together. It was mm. awesome. Mm, that's awesome. And how, how many siblings do you have? I have one brother. Oh, one brother. Okay. He's an older brother? He's younger. He's two oh. years younger than me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, did you ever as a kid think that you would move to the United States? Oh, no way. I mean, I background from my city, right? Valadares is well known in the U.S. as well. Like historically, there's a lot of people who immigrate from Valadares to the U.S. legally and illegally, right? Mm. So there's a lot of transition from there. So, yeah. I mean, we always grow up hearing about the U.S. and all that because, I mean, I mean the, the economy of my hometown, it is actually ran in dollars, right? So I mean, mm. you can buy you can buy bread. You used, to, you used to be able to buy bread with dollars and all those things. Mm. So we always hear that. But it never crossed my mind early on that I'll be actually working like in a university or in a tech company. Mm-hmm. I'll be doing research coming to the U.S. I mean, not really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you end up going to high school. What What did you want to be as a kid? I mean, as a, as every Brazilian, I wanted to be a soccer player, right? That's okay. the first thing. So, yeah. I, I mean, I grew up playing a lot of sports. So I played oh. soccer until I was, I don't know, 14 years old. But I was never very good at soccer, right? I mean, it's, it's very hard to be good at soccer in Brazil as well. Mm. So then I stopped playing soccer. I did other sports. Then, I mean, when I was around 15 years old, I did a lot of basketball. Mm. Because in Brazil, not many people play basketball. So mm. I said, well, yeah, I, can, I mean, I was taller than many. I mean, it's more of a city. And I mean, and I like the environment of the basketball, the culture and all that. So I play a yeah. lot of basketball. And that's what I mean. And I... Keep playing basketball until I was 20 years old. Mm. Right? So while I was in college, I said, well, I'm much better at studying than I am at playing basketball. So it's mm. time for me to quit basketball and focus on the studying. Mm. But I mean, growing up, I was like, well, I want to play. I mean, I want to play soccer, I want to do sports I mean, as a young kid. Yeah. Right. And then I always think about like considering like job and job perspectives later on when I was around 16. Mm-hmm. Right. That was more by elimination. I know that I, I didn't want to work like in the farm. Yeah. I didn't want to be. I, I didn't want to be a lawyer. Right. I didn't want to be a medical doctor. Right. So economics, like hearing here and there, 
So I said, well, that's a good field. I'm interesting. So I entered in economics because I was very attracted to like the finance side of economics, mm -hmm. financial sector, like investment banking and all that. Yeah. Wait, so that was in high school? In high school, you were looking into economics? Yes. I mean, in Brazil, we don't have like economics in high school in the regular like curriculum. Yeah. Right. So I, I mean, so it's the, the curriculum in high school in Brazil is very traditional. I to have like Portuguese, sciences, like English, like, and you know, you know the gig, but only traditional like math and all those things. So I studied in a different type of high school where in the mornings we have standard school and in the afternoon it was technical, focus on business. So I had additional courses in the afternoon, right? To complement, to supplement the, the standard curricula. And then I had economics. So I had economics, like, I don't know, marketing, like IT, things a lot around those lines mm. that helps like the quote unquote practical side of the job. And that's mm. when I discovered economics. Mm. And I said, well, I like that. That sounds interesting. And it yeah. talked a lot about like finance, stock market. I mean, you know, the user right. just, and right. that's, the, that's what I want to do it. I want to do that with math. Mm. Wait, so, so where do you end up going to college? I, I ended up in, going to college in Belo Horizonte. The school is called IBMEC. It's yeah. a business school, right? It's relatively, I mean, back in the day, it was relatively new, very small, right? So, I mean, we end up 10 people graduating from my class, yeah. right? We're all close friends. And it's true. I mean, almost all of them became investment bankers, right? Mm -hmm. I am the only one who went to academia. Like up to my day, I think it was perhaps the first or second one to pursue an academic career. Why did you not want to become an investment banker if you were so interested in finance? I gave up very fast. What right? was it so, about it? So what happens like, when I was like, a lot, I don't know, second year of college, I did an internship first in the Central Bank of Brazil, mm. right? And I'm like, well, that's not what I want to be. So I worked there for six months, say, that's not what I want to be. Like, Why not? What, what, what happened? What are you learning? I didn't like the, the work day-to-day -day routine in that particular unit. Right. So, mm. I mean, that was my only experience in a central bank. So back then I said, well, if this is what they are doing in this particular unit, mm -hmm. but it's not a research unit, it's like operational unit. Yeah. And I extrapolate from that from everything. So oh, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. I say, oh, it was fun. I learned a lot. I mean, different things. And I'm like, but that's not how I see myself in the future. Yeah. Right. right. Then I said, well, I came back. Then I did one semester, like in internship in the kind of like, in stock exchange type of activities, yeah. right? In an asset. And I say, well, I don't like that. I have to call all the clients. I have to do all those things, but the operational, that's not what I enjoy. Yeah. And then I had two faculty who were like Claudio Chiquida and Ari. Like they were both like super fantastic. And they say, well, we have a, a research assistantship open for people. And I mean, re recall like in my college, nobody was actually interested in research. And I said, no, 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 I want to do that. So I jumped. I was there RA for like one semester. Then it becomes one year. Then it becomes one year and a half. And I said, no, that's what I want to do it. What kind of research assistance were you doing? I was actually running like regressions, collecting. I, mean, I was doing like data management first, like mm. merging data sets, doing data validation mm. for different research projects. Mm -hmm. And also like double checking, coding, like regressions, but like nothing very like heavy, 
But yeah. more like I was, I was part of the discussion of the things. Mm, what did that feel like as a kid? Sorry. What did that feel like as a kid? Oh, it felt great because I mean that felt great because I was really part of something. Yeah. Right. So I had like, I was the only research assistant in that center. Right. Right. So I mean, I had, I was like sitting there every afternoon. They're talking research, talking about where like what things are going, where they're yeah. moving. Right. So I had all the support you can ever imagine to succeed. Mm. So that was extremely important for me because that was like, well, you can do it. Like I had this kind of like blessing of like, yeah. you can actually do it. You're good at this. So keep moving. And they keep pushing me. Mm. So you're I not, end up like, yeah. go ahead. No, I end up like, because of that situation, like, well, in my school, we didn't have like, we have like trajectories for people who want to do consulting. Yeah. Right? So they have like this, like virtual type of internships. So you have a virtual company when you run things, but there's nothing for economists. So right. it creates a kind of like a virtual, like central bank where they try to emulate decisions from the Brazilian central bank. So like doing the same analysis, we do the analysis of the economy, we write like a report, we predict what's the interest rate gonna go up or go down, mm. right? So like, that's what drove me to economics. Mm. So you're not like getting into economics because you read like, you know, Austrian economics or like, you know, or like Freakonomics. You're like, you're getting into economics because you, you're just like doing research. Yes. Working on data. Yes. Yeah, so that's, I, that's I, what's exciting you. Yeah. So I got attracted to economics because I want to make money. Right. That's I want to make first, money because that's the, yes. that's the, you came through the banking. Yes. But then like I said, well, that's not what is driving me. I want, then what was driving me was the discovery. Right. Mm. So once I was like behind the research, the discovery, finding things out, like figuring out. So I was involved with econometrics very early on. Mm. Right. I mean, I took five econometrics classes in my college. In college, right? you took five college. econometrics classes? Yeah. I mean, counting statistics. Right? So I take statistics one, statistics two, econometrics one, two, and three. Wow. Right. So I was. So you knew, like, you knew in college, you were like, I want to take. Did you did you know I wanted to sort into econometrics? Yes, I did. You knew so that. I, I applied to PhD programs to be an econometrician. Mm. So that was already like set, which is very unusual. Yeah. 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 What was it you what 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 was it about econometrics that 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 was so that was calling to you? I, I liked I I mean what I really like is the rigor, but at the same time like the speaking to the applied and the theory, bridging the applied fields and the theory fields together. Yeah. So I always found econometrics to be like this kind of like, I don't know, a bridge between applications and theory. Mm. And that was always good for me because I read, I mean, I was always like, well, you can read, you can always conjecture A, B, C different explanations. And without data, without the proper methods, we cannot disentangle which one is true. Becomes only right. based on opinions. And then I didn't like that. Mm. I was like, well, can we falsify some of this? Mm. Can we say that at least some parts are right, some parts are wrong? Mm. So that's what brought me to econometrics. Mm. Hmm. For a lot of people, you know, econometrics is like um, something that they, they don't really understand. They just kind of like get through it 
after years of running regressions and then like gradually start to understand, you know, but it sounds like from the very moment you just, you felt at home in it. Is that right? It's, it is right. I mean, I, I was very like lucky to, I mean, the econometrics education back in the days in my college, like to be Mac, it was very good. Mm. We, did, we, we opened up like econometrics one. Well, everything was based in matrix algebra as well. Right? Mm. So, I mean, we already know the inner things from the very beginning, like Frisch, like FWL, right? We saw that as an undergrad. So we, we can see things move. We have to derive everything from the very structure, from the first principles. So once you understand the first principles, it's easy to like extrapolate here and there and build yeah. upon it. Right. So for me, it was like, it was never something that I had to memorize. Right. Right. It was like, well, you, you build from first principles. And that was very like, I don't know, eye-opening for me because I felt like, well, I can do this. I understand mm. it. There is a method behind it. Mm. Is that, is there a lot of diversity in econometrics curriculum where you don't necessarily get first principles? Oh uh, yeah, a lot. What are I mean, like, like, so, so what's, what's another way that a, a, a person might learn econometrics at a graduate level and not got what you got so at the undergraduate level it's very common to do kind of like a cookbook type of style right. so this situation you do this this situation you do that but there is no like underlying foundation of why you're choosing the different paths mm. right so if you if you zoom out too early yeah. you lose the connections yeah of course if you zoom in too early as well you lose interest so that is like this sweet spot between when to zoom in and when to zoom out, that you can balance the two. So we, we, I mean, in my view, we should always know why we are doing what we are doing it. Like, but the goal should be clear. But I mean, but the foundations is also important because that is beauty in that. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that's like helps you like extrapolating later. Were there econometricians in college that you were already sort of looking up to? Like people that you were like, I really want to be like that person or yeah so i took a course on dynamic processes right so hamiltonians dynamic optimization right the faculty at that class was like recently finished his phd and i mean he was someone that i we always look up because he was like i don't know 28 years old 29 years old back then very accessible right super friendly mm. and always very eager to explain the whys mm. so that was like so yeah that's a good model mm. so that was yeah fabulous. what about what about professional econometricians that weren't at your school were there were there people that you just really i don't know like heckman or like people that you just like read just religiously or closely that you really looked up to or identified with their work so i mean not early on that was later, right? Mm. So early, I mean, I remember like in the last year of college, I went to, there was this conference in Brazil called Forecasting in Rio, right? It's a whole conference about econometrics. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I want to do a PhD in econometrics, right? So I wanna, I'm just going to go to this conference and see how, what people talk about. Right. I, I mean, that was shocking because I, I, as it should be, I had no clue what they were talking about whatsoever, right? So this is like a top-notch, like conference, I mean, the conference also got an special issue in Journal of Econometrics, mm. right, later on. So many of the papers there got published in Journal of Econometrics. 
And me as an undergrad was just sitting there like listening, listening. And I said, that, that was good because I felt like I can see myself doing that, right? But I don't remember, I mean, if you ask me who presented there, who was there, I cannot tell you anything because I just don't remember. Yeah. But the whole event. It, like, you you went to the event and you were like, I can see myself here. I can, I, yes. I can, I, this, this feels like me. What was it that felt like you? I mean, it's, it's just like people were very, I mean, open and they're, they're, they're talking about the methods with so much passion. Yeah. Right? So people are like talking about the discoveries, why they're doing that. I mean, mm. There's like a lot of, like, I don't know, heart in those discussions. Right. I, say, I like that. Yeah, That's yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's, you can see like the, the eyes brightening mm. because they're, I mean, the discovery, the excitement. I say, yeah, that's what, that's what, that's what I enjoy. Right, right, right. Well, so, so once you decided I want to be an econometrician, you applied to PhD programs. Where did you really want to, where, what were the schools that you were looking at that you were like, I want to, that they were the ones where I wanted to sort of become an econometrician? So I apply only to Europe, right? I didn't apply to any school in the U.S., Oh. Yeah, because I mean, usually the path for Brazilians economists, it is like they finish the college, they finish undergrad, then they do a master's in Brazil, like mm. two years, and then after the master, they apply to the PhD. Mm. I was very impatient, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I skipped the master. So I want to apply straight for the undergrad. And that's highly unusual, mm. right? So I said, well, and remember, like, reminder that my school was not like traditional. Yeah. So there is, there is no chance. I would get into the U.S. with scholarships. At least that was in my mind. Right. Well, I'm going to apply to Europe then. So I only applied to Europe. And I end up, I applied to like, I don't know, 10 to 15 schools, right? And I end up being accepted in three. So Queen Mary, Toulouse, and Carlos III. Mm. Right? So from these three, Carlos III it was the one that had the strongest group in econometrics. And I'm like, that's what I want to be, mm. right? So I what are they known for? What kind, what, who are the people there that are... That... They are very well known for time series, right? Time series econometrics. Yeah. And also non-parametrics. Mm. You so like back, time? Uh, okay. Yeah. So back in the day, around 2009, that's when I went to college, there was this ranking of econometrics by subclassifications. And Carlos III in that ranking... Right, was I think third or fourth in theoretical mm -hmm. econometrics. So that jumped my eye. They are, this is interesting. They are like the top, they're producing a lot of econometric theory. So I said that I, I can do that. You know, I think I'm, I think Dan Reese got a job at Carlos III. I'm going there. Where is it at? In Madrid. Yeah, I'm going there in March. Oh, I, didn't really? realize, I didn't realize that was the same school as you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. It, it is great. I mean, wow. I, 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 it's great. Wow. Yes. So you get there and, you know, I don't really associate you with time series. I associate with so much with causal inference and, and other things. So like, but, but are you sort of an econometrician that's just like, you love all of it. You just, you just love learning all of it. So I started my PhD in, Time series, right? So, I mean, my first three years of the PhD, so the first, the coursework in the first two years, I was doing all time series, mm. right? So I was working on like count, dynamic count data models, 
Mm-hmm. So think about like you have like you want to know you have a prediction model for I don't know bank runs or bank failures. Yeah. And you want to know if this model is correctly specified. How do you know that? Yeah. So and then all the number of defaults, like so I was working this type of questions to good like assessing if the model is good enough for those jobs. And I wrote a paper on that. It got published later at JBS. Mm. But I mean, around, at the end of the third year, I was like, what else can I do here? You published that in grad school? Uh, I, I mean, I submitted in grad school. It got out and out during grad school, but it was only accepted in my first year after grad school. Wow, at JBS, that's great. Yes. Huh. So then like around the, the end of my third year, I was like, I don't know what else I can do here. Right? Yeah. So I was like, well, what is the analogous of count data? Like the, the, the dual is survive is like, instead of like how many events happens in a given window, you can look at how many, how much time has to pass until an event happened. Mm. Then I start, I start working on survival analysis yeah. and duration data through the lens of causal inference. Oh, so you so do I, start taking up causal. So how, what did you know about causal inference at this time before that? Like what, 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 who were you reading? You, you knew all, you knew all as much, you knew just a ton or, or was I was it... reading a lot of like Hido Ibn's work, the Josh uh-huh. work. I mean, a lot of like Alberto Abadi's work. Yeah. Right? So those are the three main authors I was reading all the time back then. Gene Hackman. I mean, I remember reading like most harmless back to back two or three times, mm. right? So I did a lot of that thing like by my own. Mm. And I, I was lucky enough to take a summer course with Alberto Abadi at Sanfi mm. in the day when he did this, like this week long introduction to causal inference. Mm-hmm. And that, that I was already like working with like causal inference with survival data. But then it's like, that's like, no, there's a lot of things here that I can dig. Mm. So that like, further extend my my view mm. Mm. but my advisor i mean miguel delgado which is absolutely great advisor by the way mm-hmm. it is like he was not work he's not doesn't work much on causal inference he's more like a non-parametric type of person that was your dissertation so, right it was on non-parametric that was my dissertation. yes yeah yeah um what kind of habits did you have to develop in graduate school and what kind of skills did you have to like start really investing in so that you would be successful as an econometrician, either technical or even like non-cognitive like habits and stuff? Because, you know, you, 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 you're so unique amongst all my friends or that there's just a level of happy focus, you know, of like, you've seemed like you've just always knew I got to do this in order to do this. What, what were the, what were the habits and skills you felt like you needed? So first is like, I think very often economists and econometricians as well, we don't read outside our field. So mm. that was something that I was, I was doing very often, very early, reading a lot of biostats, mm. right? reading a lot of like, like statistics in general to see what is going on in other fields. And that helped me a lot mm. because once you understand the advances in the other fields, there's a lot of opportunities to bring those new tools to us as well. Yeah. Right, so yeah. I, was, I, I did that a lot. So I was always keeping a curious mind. I mean, one of my professors would say, always keep your eyes open for opportunities. Right. And that was very important for me. Yeah. 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 And right. the other thing is like always like 
enjoy the process. Yeah. Right? Because it's very frustrating very often. I mean, the life of an econometrician is very frustrating because before you get something right, you get it wrong a hundred times. Give me an example. What, what happens when an econometrician, when's, like, give me an example of a time you got it wrong. So, I mean, I, I'm trying to prove something. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, I'm there, like, trying to prove. If I thought, first I said, oh, I think I would disprove this strategy. Right. So, I don't know, like, induction. It doesn't work. Right. And you, and you hit that, yeah, it doesn't work. So, you spend one day, it doesn't work. Then, I mean, then it's like, it's in your mind. You can, I mean, I cannot turn it off. Then so, right. next day, I try something else. It doesn't work. Then it's like, until you find all the pieces and bits to actually put together mm -hmm. and make it fly, that's a, that takes a lot of maturity or mm -hmm. higher understanding that comes only with time. Right. And as a young researcher, you are very impatient. Mm -hmm. right? You want to do it everything now, yesterday. Mm. And th then you, like, you speed it up so much. And that's like, was tricky for me what is that skill so it's like the 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 skill involved is like not giving up kind not of type up. thing up yes not i mean i'm i'm very competitive person so i think yeah. like not giving up and like not i mean failure is part of the job right so right. you're gonna fail it's like but it's always moving forward right? right that's my essentially like what i have in my office at the university is like always forward never backwards right Right. Because I mean, it's part of the process. So looking, I mean, things gonna get it as long as you keep driving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So when when you started working with, the, you know, I I feel like really my eyes opened. Not being an econometrician, it's like uh, my one of my things that really opened my eyes a lot was the potential outcomes model. You know, because we didn't learn that in econometrics in graduate school, so I learned it. Yeah, late, long time. I don't remember when it was, but it was probably some, it was probably reading Morgan and Winship or something. And, um, you know, I'm just curious, like when you, I was talking to Embens and he was explaining the late theorem and how he had found, how, how originally he had the result using an index model. And then he switches you know, because he says, you know, you can do potential treatment status. And he spoke about it as though like potential outcomes was was like just easier and made things cleaner or made things like because he's made statements that he feels like moving away from potential outcomes to the realized outcomes just obscured a lot of things. I'm just curious, like, you know, you're you're really comfortable working with potential outcomes, but like how do you how do you see it? Because you don't you don't just use it. You're not like Ruben, just just using it over and over. What's what's your relationship with that kind of that kind of notation? So I like the notation a lot. So I, like you, I also was exposed to this very late, right? So all my econometrics courses does zero of that. Yeah. Right. So I was exposed to this more like a language to encompass, like to avoid making restrictions on things we don't see. Uh -huh. So I like a lot of the, I mean, the structure behind potential outcomes of the way of framing things. Right. It is like, well, there is this state of the world. There is this other state of the world. I don't have to add any extra condition apart from Sutma, right? Right. I mean, on those things. Yeah. And I can, I can, the map from questions to parameters of interest is very clean for me. Mm. I really like that. Because like, well, 
the question comes first, right? Once I have the question set, how I'm gonna translate that question into a parameter of like interest through using potential outcomes. Once I have done that, so well, now I know the, the parameter of interest. How I'm gonna identify this using restrictions, right? And then once I have done that, so well, now how I'm gonna estimate and make interest. So this whole chain of like questions, target parameters, identification, and only later talking about estimation and inference, that's a huge thing for me. Well, where'd you and get I that? Where, where did you get that? I had never heard it. You, I remember you telling me once that was controversial even. Or we're talking yeah, about I mean, aggregation was kind of like controversial. If you're, I mean, this, this is like, depend, I mean, this order, I yeah. don't think there's much controversy on that. But yeah. sometimes it's just like, well, you cannot answer the question that you want. So you're not, I mean, you cannot answer what you want. So you end up wanting something else. Yeah. There's this whole debate between like late and NT back in the 90s. Yeah. So a lot of this is, is there. Yeah. Right. So what I'm, my view is that there is value on both. Right. Especially when, when you have to make different assumptions to answer different things. Mm -hmm. So for example, IV versus MT. Those mm -hmm. involve, I mean, in terms of questions, I mean, it's well framed. Now, if you have to bring those estimates to the data, you do require different things. Mm -hmm. And then I see value on both. Well, sometimes I want to answer MT, but I cannot, mm -hmm. right? So I'm going to end up with something that is easier to estimate. Right, right. But, in, but on the other hand, in diff and diff, in the difference in different literature, yeah. this, there is no kind of like dichotomy here because the assumptions are exactly the same. Mm. And that's where I'm like, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. In the MTE, in the IV literature, like the assumptions do change. Yeah. In the DID versus 2A fixed effects, the assumptions are essentially the same. Yeah. So then it's like, well, if the assumptions are the same, I always favor something that is more transparent or more guided yeah. from like question, parameter, identification, and methods, instead yeah. of starting right away with the estimation methods. So when does when does diff and diff first start to pique your curiosity? This was like when I moved to Vanderbilt. Was it Vanderbilt? Because at Vanderbilt was like, was more like, so I I finished my PhD, I arrived at Vanderbilt. What year and is I'm that? Like, what, year are you, what, what year do you 2015, get there? 2015. Oh, 2015? Okay. 2015. So when I was coming, I mean, I my senior colleagues on the time was Tong Lee, right? And he was working a lot of differences and differences. Oh, he was? Yeah. With whom? Brent Colloway. He right? and Brent, so Brent were doing stuff on, Brent on diff Colloway, diff? The whole PhD thesis of Brent is on diff and diff. Oh. The entire thesis on Brent is on diff and diff. Huh. So I, before I joined, I read all the papers that Tong and Brent wrote together. Sure. But I'm like, so I'm coming, I'm, I'm, I'm fresh PhD, so I have to do my job. Right. So then I meet Brent, right? So Brent, I have read all your papers. Let's talk. Then we start chatting, right? I mean, I, we talk here, talk there. I gave him some feedbacks. Like he responded. Then Brent and I just clicked, right? Mm. I don't know how that happened because I came, I was, I mean, I tend to be, I was very upfront and direct, mm. right? So some of my criticisms to Brent were more like too straightforward, like too direct, that it could be easily seen as unpolite, mm. right? 
But then it's like, we sit together, we endure, I, we help each other. And then like Brent and I, we, we click right away. Mm. Then it's like, Brent, we should work together on something. It's like, yeah, let's he's work. He's not on working on differential timing. No, he's not. What's he, what what different diff stuff is he doing? So he was doing difference and differences in the distributional sense. Oh, so yeah. Quantile models, also partial identification. Oh. Right? So because think about like questions like, what is the proportion of people who benefit from the treatment? Yeah, right. And so his job market paper is all about that. Like, well, uh -huh. I have a different, different strategy, yeah. but I cannot point identify the, the parameter. Yeah. So how is balance? Mm. And yeah, that, like, that's gotten swallowed up by this differential timing. Yeah. Seems like it seems like all these other all this other activity, it's kind of like just smothered by it. Wait, so was there like a quiet group of econometrics working on diff and diff before so, this blow up? I mean, I know about Abity 03 and Heckman and like, you know, the clustering Bertrand, Duflo and Moonthem. And then I know about Carell's paper in 2016 and stuff, but I didn't really know Brant was doing stuff on it before you. No, Brant was there. Brant had like, a, his paper got published at QE, distributional treatment effects. There were more people working. But I mean, the thing is like, they didn't have their whole audience before. It's just like they were working quietly, but it, the platform was not so like big yet. Mm. Differential time gave us all voices. That's mm. what happened. Before then, like, well, he was working on that, right? To gather his tongue. But I mean, it was, it was getting published. It was pushing forward. Mm. But the applied audience did not have like the eyes open or the ears like, ready for that also mm. it's a different type of question because like they're looking for distributional parameters right. right so it's like well i care about that but it's quote unquote it may not be first order yeah yeah when differential time came it's like no 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 this is this is first order can you tell me in your opinion the story of you know this like this this like recent renaissance of diff and diff when you think of it in your mind how you witnessed it what's like the first shot and then like what happens so i think it's like i can tell you from my perspective right so andrew goodman baker was also my office neighbor like back like at vanderbilt yeah. so he and i i mean we play soccer together we are, we are friends and all that is he any good so at I, soccer he's good he's better than i am oh so. is he okay all right <laughs> yeah no, and, and he's competitive as well so which is good oh uh, okay so, I mean, so we were like, we play soccer with grad students from time to time. Yeah. Then like we talk after. And then it's like, he presented like an early version of his paper in an internal seminar. And I'm like, ah, this sounds very similar to what I had been working on with Brent. Right. Mm. So I remember. Y'all were talking about, y'all were talking about differential timing. We are not talking until that moment. Right. Mm. So he presented. I think he has been carrying his work for a long while. Since yeah, I saw he had some notes that he took a photograph of from Michigan. Oh, yes. it's like like early 2010 stuff. Yes. Yeah. Well, he's, then he's like, well, I want to understand like what is variation from anything's going on over there. Right. And I'm like, and Brent and I, we are working from a different perspective. We're like, we want to know, I mean, what parameter we can actually identify in this setup. Yeah. It's, like, it's essentially the flip coin of one problem and another. Right. So I remember talking to Bacon 
And it's like, oh, this is cool. We all can steal the thing. Is Bacon originally just doing a decomposition? Like yes. he's got no potential outcomes in it. No. So he's just like, he's just using Frischwall level and he's like, it's a weighted sum over a bunch of, uh, and so I guess like if it's just a weighted sum of a bunch of two by twos, like probably those, those weird weights were really they're not all positive, they're but all you're positive not like saying, them. yeah, they're all positive and, but they got the variance weight, but he's, but he's not telling anybody uh, the stuff about the dynamic treatment pro- stuff no, no. and nothing about the forbidden no contrast. No. Okay. So I, I remember like, I told, he was like, I have this result I say, well, but why do I care? Right. right. Why do I care? What kind of pressure does parameters answer? Like, yeah. if it, it does not have any causal interpretation. And he was like then pushing back. But that's what that's what actually do they not back. get do you, do you think they don't get at Michigan the potential outcomes? No, they do. They, they do, do. But why didn't they Andrew, why, yeah, why yeah. wasn't Andrew sticking that in there? I think it's just like different perspective, right? Uh-huh. So just like, well, he's like my starting point was to understand the mechanics. Yeah. Once I understand the mechanics, I can move on to convert factors. So it's right, kind of like right, layers, right? right? Mm-hmm. So it, for me, I, was like, I start to like answering from the building blocks. Yeah. Then I say, well, I can aggregate later. Yeah. So Bacon and I, we chat a lot about back and forth. I'm like, tell me more how you think, right? Can you, because I'm very curious to understand the thought process. Mm-hmm. Because until then, I was very theoretical, mm-hmm. right? And I'm like, I want to talk to more applied folks. I want to get closer to them. Right, so how do I do that? I had to learn the language. I had to learn the way of thinking, right? I had to, I mean, I had to see the world from the applied perspective, not mm-hmm. from the high tower of econometrics. Okay, so what does that mean in this context? How so do applied people think about diff and diff? Because once we talk about identification, the meaning of identification in econometrics is very specific. Yeah. The meaning of identification in applied micro is like the source of variation trying to leverage. Yeah. So that is the, the like. So even when it's say identification, we don't match the language. And I'm yeah. like, well, how am I supposed to speak your understand your problem if when you say something, I understand something else? Right, right, right. There is match over there. So that so, so Bacon was fundamental for like help us transition to this word. Mm. And so him, I talked to other applied micro folks as well. Mm. Right, and that's why how it start shifting my interest. Because mm. I'm like, no, 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 there is something interesting here, right? We are not listening to the real problem. Speaking of Callaway and Santana, for example, was focusing mostly on testing, testing for parallel trend. As the paper was like developing, saying, no, no, that's not the meat, that's not the core. The core is identification. So. All along the way, we're changing how we process things. Mm. That was through referees, through conversations of applied folks, right? To exposure, debates, and all that. This is this is the Vanderbilt side. And at almost the exact same timing, with no communications across the groups, right? So Sun and Abraham was working on similar problems, right? The Clemon and Xavier were working on similar problems. And all this is like, I don't know, the first drafts across all these papers, like have that I, that I, at least that I first complete draft of all these papers have like, I don't know, one, two months difference between them. Yeah. Right. You're all young. You're all graduate students or assistant professors, not yes. in the same network. Yes. 
But it's, it's also important to say like the, the paper by Borussia and Jorovell was yeah. definitely earlier than ours. Yeah, yeah, it's 2016, right. Yes. They, it was earlier than ours. Yeah. Right? I mean, so yeah, that's that, that's like for at least the version that I read it was earlier than ours. See, my my graduate training, my my I the 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 thing I really left with at Georgia was panel fixed effects. Because we had my advisor was a panel econometrician, is a panel econometrician. And and I think I, you know, thought when I kind of realized what panel fixed effects was doing, um, and it's really straightforward, just that demeaning. I was like, oh man, now I can just address all this unobserved heterogeneity all the time. And I don't know when I started the, I just like, in my mind, people were calling it diff and diff. And in my mind, I was just like, this is just a fixed effects estimator. But it was like, I, I felt like what happened, what, what happened with me was it was just when Andrew says on Twitter, um, you don't need that parallel trends isn't enough. And that if you have dynamic treatment effects, it's biased. I just remember being really stunned because I didn't understand how that violated strict exogeneity. So I'm just kind of curious, like, how did you know, like, like, why did did you know, were you surprised when you learned that strict exogeneity assumed uh, homogenous treatment effects, dynamic, non-dynamic treatment effects? Did that surprise you? I mean, it died. Let me put this, this is a hard question to answer. I mean, so I didn't know any of this before, right? Just to be clear, when I was writing my paper, I had no clue like Brett as well, about this problem of negative weight. We didn't know it. What we knew was like, well, it's very hard to embrace heterogeneity through the lens of like potential outcomes. Right. With that simple, with that simple specification. With that specification, with, yeah. Yes, because I mean, essentially what do I mean? Once we embrace heterogeneity, all the coefficients have an I, right? Yeah. The, it's beta I. So if beta is constant, all the heterogeneity is shifted to, to the residual. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, what kind of structure in the residual term you have to impose to still recover something that is like, quote unquote, meaningful? We could not, for the life of us, get that, right? That's how, that's how we started from IPW, Calorie and Santana. Mm. Right? So because like, we, 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 didn't know, we didn't know to run in a single regression to get the clean stuff that later on, Son and Abraham did. Uh, I mean, at least like the cohort. So we're like, we don't know how to do that exactly. Yeah. So the, the strict heterogeneity is essentially like, well, everything is shift to the residuals. Yeah. Right. This is heterogeneity. And then, I mean, I don't know if that surprised me or did not surprise me. Yeah. But I mean, essentially, like, it's very hard to allow for rich sort of heterogeneity without modeling it. Right. right, right. Have you found this diff and diff literature? Like, the, the, did you have you found that your paper with Brandt was intellectually just 
deep for you personally? Did it feel like the good feeling of discovery? Oh yeah, it does. It feels, really? it feels absolutely great. I mean, I'm very proud of that paper mm. because essentially it's like, for me, the main message of the paper, it is like, let's split the job into simple tasks. Like is that, it reflects some way of thinking that I have. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, let's talk about identification, estimation, aggregation, and estimation, which mimics some of the recommendations that Gene Hackman has been doing for many years in different in different subjects. I know. I was just about to say this one thing. I'm gonna say it after you say this. Yeah. Yes. So that is like so funny, I, I, like. It's like you think about Heckman and Embens and Angrist in the 90s. And it's like, you know, I asked Embens, I was like, I, I heard kind of like, you know, there was like, it was a little bit controversial, the work he did. And, and he, he said like that people kind of felt like they were cheating because uh, they had like, you know, the late theorem didn't get the answer. And his whole point, like, didn't get the average treatment effect. And his whole thing was like, well, we're not saying it's, it's like good or bad. We're just saying this is what you get. And it's like, yeah, and I agree. And I, I agree. felt like that's kind of how I read Andrew, Andrew's paper. Yeah, it's like exactly. Andrew's paper is just basically like, yeah, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's like, if you run this regression, this is what it is. It's a very it's the variance weighted ATT plus the variance weighted parallel trends minus the the delta ATT and that's it. And then like I think about you, and you've been just like that Heckman character because you've always been like, what's the question? What's the identification that's going to be required to get that that parameter? And like you have this like layout that you go through where you you kind of don't just say well this is what it is you always you seem to really want to solve it i agree that's, that's, that's true right much what, that that's right that's pretty much what i do right but i mean also like to be fair to compare like the diff and diff to a fixed effect with the iv the iv probably is substantially harder than mm. the ones we have here right so why people do not jump into mt right away because to get the MTEs, you need a continuous instrument with long support. Mm-hmm. That's hard to get in practice very often, mm. right? So that so you, you need additional conditions over there. Yeah, and that that end up favoring late much more because the requirements are weaker. Yeah, that doesn't happen in the two fixed effects versus DID because the, the identification assumptions are exactly the same. The data requirements are exactly the same. Mm. Right. So that's why I think like we have a simple. So problem. what was hard with two, what was hard with different. So what was hard with two way fixed effects? My take is yeah. that we move to regressions too early in the career, in the whole mm. training. So once you learn, I mean, our mental model is to frame everything in the regression as soon as we can. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is step from like question of interest to a regression specification is too fast and too early, mm. right? So everything has to have a regression specification and, and the regression coefficient, it is the parameter of interest. Mm-hmm. That's not always true, right? right? I mean, I mean, even like in non-parametric models, that's not true. Yeah. Like, so if you adopt a like more agnostic 
like view or a more flexible point of view. Yeah. But we carry sometimes functions right. of those parameters. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, that's the transition that I think was too fast. Yeah. And that's essentially what like many of my papers are doing it. Mm. The, the this paper that you just got in Econometrica with John Roth, you know, can, can you tell me a little bit about th that paper? That's obviously a huge, a huge uh, hit for you and John. You know, can can you sort of tell me the 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 elevator pitch for that paper? Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. So first, like, sh shout out to John, amazing co-author, amazing friend as well. Like, always a blessing to work with him. So that paper, the idea is like, well. Very often you do different this, right? And you say, well, you assume some kind of parallel trends. But then it's like, do you, do you, is your outcome of interest measuring logs, measuring levels, hyperbolic sign, or other, like, I don't know, rank transformation, mm. right? So you say, well, different papers are going to adopt different types of transformation of the outcome of interest. And mm. we know as soon as we change the outcome of interest, the parallel trend, Change also trend, right? And then it's like, well, what kind of condition we need to require such that parallel trends holds for all transformations? So it's kind of like transformation robust. Can you give so me an example? Paper, Can you give me an example of what you're talking so, about? Like, so very, I mean, if I like awesome. log it, if I like, do, you know, what's a kind of parallel trend that is invariant to any kind of transformation? Yes, monotone transformation. So if, if, uh. you have, if you have outcomes in levels or have outcomes in logs, can this hold? Can parallel trends hold for both of them at the same time? And not only these two, for any other monotonic transformation. Right, so that the paper characterized like what we're doing. The paper, and like, the answer is yes. Yes, there is an if and only if condition, right? So parallel trends is invariant wow. to the transformation of the out of the uh, invariant to monotone transformations if and only if, like it holds for if if you have a parallel trend in CDFs, right? Mm. So if you have a parallel trend in CDFs, like which we kind of characterize in the paper, then parallel trend is insensitive to functional form. I don't know. So how are you and John going back and forth, figuring that something like that out? So this is something that like always, so like what always bothers us is like, what's the empirical content of parallel trends? Yes. Where it's coming from. So first, like, well, is it, is it the functional form restrictions or not? Yeah. Right. So that's like how we started. Okay. And it's like, well, in order to know if it's a functional form, we had to first characterize when it's insane, the parallel trend is going to be insensitive to functional form. Yeah. And that's the birth of this paper. Yeah. Uh, and then it's like, we get this characterization of parallel trend in CDFs. And the beauty of it, it is that this is also testable. But are you guys just like getting on Zoom and like batting this around? Or is it like texting or like? Uh, so, yeah. So John, like, I first met John when he was in the market, right? So I read his paper, job market paper, and I cold email him with a bunch of comments. Uh huh. I had never met him, never seen him. I read his paper and I cold email him with a bunch of comments. Yeah. And I was like, well, if I have these comments, most likely other people are going to have. So you're going to be in the market. Just be prepared. Don't bother to answer. This is just like heads up. So, I mean, 
I don't do that often. I do this. I mean, I have done this, I think, two, two or three times only my whole life. Yeah. Then, I mean, because the reaction can be either, who is this guy? I don't even know him. Leave me alone. Right? Which is fair. Yeah. The other reaction is like, yeah, like, then you engage. So John engaged. So we exchange emails and all that. Good. So that's how we met. Then, like, fast forward, he defended the PhD. He sent me an email saying, oh, I'm having these ideas. Right? So let's talk. I'm interested. This is very good. So that's how our, then we started exchanging emails. We are sending direct messages through Twitter, right? And I'm like, this is very disorganized. Let's move to Slack. Mm. So I opened up a Slack channel. And then from there, we start talking every single day, right? And then the, and we open like an Overleaf page. We collaborate there, talk on Slack. And I mean, having that since day one. How quickly did y'all get to that CDF result? Oh, that took us a lot of iterations. What, what do you, how do you, how do you even iterate to that? Like what, what is it? What, what makes you go, aha, parallel trends in the CDF? What, what, what did you guys start? Re how, what's the breadcrumbs that led to that? So we were like, essentially it's from the proof of strategy, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, so one direction was easy. Right, so if, if you have parallel trends in CDF, then you have parallel trends in levels. That's easy, right? But then it's like all monotone transformation is like that took a lot, a lot a bit of construction, mm. right? So it was essentially like trying here, trying there. I mean, we have some examples, and that just popped out. It was mm. pretty neat. That's cool. But That's... what took us more time was like, well, we get that characterization. Yeah. Like how? Does parallel training CDFs show up in the world? What generates that? That's harder, yeah. right? And that took us more like time to derive, and that we got pushed to derive that through this like in asking for feedbacks. People were asking us, but how can you get that? What generates that? And that was harder. Mm. Mm. Wow. So this has been a rush, right? This all this diff and diff stuff has been. Do you do you feel like there is still more work to be done on diff and diff? Do you feel like you're yeah. just kind of tinkering now, or this is like just it really is continually like intellectually lots of really important puzzles that you like working on? I think there is the answer is there is plenty of problems everywhere you see it. Yeah. Right. So I mean, the question is, are these going to be first order problems or not? Right. That I can't answer. I don't know. Until yeah. I, I, mean, I don't know, because when I start working on it. People are like, diff and diff, that's just regression. We all know all about it. And fast forward five years now, right? Look up what the scene. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. very hard for me. I think like there is still a lot of things to be learned about differences and differences. There is still a lot of territory there. Yeah. Right. The question is now like how big that's the, the additional contribution is going to be, yeah. which is hard to, to say before they are done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I inquire me. I think like we need more people working on these problems. Well, so you you take this leave from Vanderbilt, you end up going to tech, and now you kind of like, you know, have this like two feet in both worlds. And I just was wondering, you know, what what can you tell some there's there's some kid, you know, in a PhD program right now, and they they don't know what their preferences are, right? Cause like they, they don't want to go to Microsoft and then go, I don't like it. 
I want, I wish I'd have stayed in academia. And so I was just wondering, what do you, what do you like? What, what do you, okay, maybe you don't have to tell what you like, but what do you see as like the types of people that really love one or the other? And what, what are, and for some people that go in that love it, they're not really giving up anything to go into Microsoft and another person, it would feel like they're giving up their right arm. So like, I'm just wondering like, what exactly are the real trade-offs of tech? for a person who could have a, a career in as an academic? So that that's a tricky question because the answer is, of, as an economist, is I don't know. Yeah. Right? But I mean, I, I can only give you the, my perspective from being part of Microsoft Research, yeah. right? which is very unique as well, right? Because like Microsoft Research, we actually do a, we spend a lot of time doing pure research, yeah. which is not necessarily linked together to Microsoft projects. Right, so which is kind of like a unique feature. So everything that I say applies to this position, right? So okay. to being a researcher in at Microsoft Research. Got it. So if a student it is in doubt which path to follow, right? And you want to end up at Microsoft Research, my recommendation is focus on research, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the path that's going to actually get you to the door as a, as a, as a researcher in the industry. Mm -hmm. If you keep pushing research, right, uh, you I mean, and that's gonna like, open many doors. So you don't have to choose until you actually have to choose. So, the, so, so like your human capital investments are exactly the same. The same. The right. same. What it, what may change? It is like your ability to communicate. Like it's all, it's also in academia. Clearly communicate with a broader audience and. Receive and like ability to for this ambiguation. Many of the problems that I work at Microsoft, there is no clear cut answer. Things are complicated, right? So what you're gonna what you have to be good is like, well, in this imperfect scenario, how do I move forward, right? So you have to be comfortable on navigating this sea of like favoring one method versus another, like doing some sanity checks that this is okay. Right, that you're not leaving, that you're not risking too much, and moving forward. Mm -hmm. That that is, but that comes with time as well. I didn't have any of that when I joined Microsoft. But with like one year in, you start feeling comfortable, tackle these problems, talking to different partners, and yeah, I mean, for me, the transition was very smooth. Mm -hmm. So people, if you were to go back to academia. What do you feel like you would be losing, not counting money and all that stuff? What, what, are you, what are you giving up now that you've been in Microsoft for a couple of years and you go back to academia? What have you said goodbye to that, you that is not waiting for you at a new school? What you lose is the ability to have fast impact. Fast impact. The, the, the speed of changes in this world of tech is super fast. I work a lot of Xbox, right? And with Xbox, the, the pace of innovation is fast. Mm. And it's fascinating because of that, right? Mm. Whatever happens three months ago, it is too late. You have to fast forward now. So I love that dynamics, right? Every single day, it is a new challenge. You yeah. learn a lot from what we have done in the past to do better moving forward. Right. And I mean, that 
atmosphere of everybody working in a faster pace to get some deliverables, right? That you do miss. Mm. On the other hand, at the same time, what do you miss going full-time in tech, right? They, it's not always the case you're going to have an academic community behind you. So mm. people who spend some a lot of time thinking about the problems like you do, right? Share the same values of discovery as you do. Mm. The incentives are different, right? So, I mean, in my job, I have a lot of more incentives to produce products, to right. have impact in products, right? right? So, and I also have incentives to, pro- to, write, to write papers and do research, but I mean, they go like hand to hand. So those are different incentives. Yeah. So how you navigate the two? For me, it didn't affect me negatively, also because I have my network ready, right? So I, I'm already, I have my network outside. I already know many people. And what I have been trying to do these days with the younger people coming to work in my team, it is to guide them through my network as well. Yeah. Right? So then I was like, well, they don't, they don't have to miss the academic community. We are here to actually like navig- help navigate and all that. Right. But have been fun. I, it's, a, it's a fun ride. Mm, mm. Well, it's top of the hour. I know I need to let you go. It's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's so much fun to always talk. I love to hear your perspective on things and to, to, to learn from you. Um, I guess I would just conclude, um, you know, is there a paper that, you know, it's not your favorite paper, but is there a paper that, you know, looking back, you just think, I guess this paper really made a big impression on me because I seem to be thinking about it a lot. You know, is there a paper like that that seems to have just really sunk inside you? I do have one, but it, it and it's definitely not an applied friendly paper. Yeah. Right. I think, my, I mean, it's a paper by Shaohon Chen, Ingrid Van Kelligan, and Oliver Linton. So Chen, Linton, Van Kelligan, I think it's 2003 paper in Econometrica about like, doing empirical process with non-smooth objective functions. And everything I do these days, I fit into that framework. Oh, wow. So it's a very abstract general framework, right? So like, into that, right? That very often what I do is like, I map some of my causal inference problems into the notation of that paper. Then suddenly I have all the asymptotic properties almost for free once I fix that. That's the cool. same is true in the paper by like I and Chen, right? So Shaohan Chen and I as well. So they, they, I think 2002 paper, they also have a lot of those structure. Very rich papers with a lot of results that I feel not everybody appreciates as much as they should. So those are yeah. among my two favorite papers of all time. That's great. Well, it's so wonderful to see you, Pedro. Um, You have a great day. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. (laughs) Bye-bye.